Hello all you film freaks and movie maniacs out there. My name is Nolan Carr and I'd like to welcome you to the go-to podcast for all things cinema. But before you can ask any questions, just sit back, relax, as I present to you a Strawland Studio Productions Critiquing with Carr. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to episode number two of Critiquing with Carr. And this week's edition of Film Fridays is an amazing one. I know I said that for Movie Mondays, the debut episode Shawshank Redemption, but this one is just as good, if not better, but you will find out why I said that right now, later on in the video. As I mentioned last week and in the introduction trailer a few weeks ago, every Monday we do a Monday called Memorable Movie Monday and Friday is favorite film Fridays. And this is why my favorite film is on Friday because this week we are reviewing the Godfather Part One. What can't I say about this amazing film from start to finish? Like Shawshank is a masterful piece. However, unlike Shawshank, this film is more slow, more methodical, and more plausible in that aspect. If you want to say that, the acting is superb. And unlike Shawshank, this film is with a bunch of unknown characters—I should say actors—beyond Marlon Brando. As I mentioned in my other review, my first review of Shawshank, how this works is I will tell you who helped bring the picture to light behind the camera, the cast, other members of the crew, how it did in the box office, what its budget was, and things of that nature, as well as my likes, my dislikes, and then my final review and what I rank it out of Diamond Daves. And it'll be your choice on whether to see this film or not after my review. And without further ado, let us begin. Similar to Shawshank, the director of this film pulls double duty as Francis Ford Coppola. He is both the director and co-screenwriter of this film, along with Mario Puzo, who also helps him direct and write, or say, write at least, in Godfather 2. But we'll get to Godfather 2 momentarily, not right now. This book is based off of, as I said, the novel written by Mario Puzo called The Godfather. And a lot from that book is shown in this film. But of course, like any other production that's translated from a book or a play or vice versa, whatever it may be, there's a lot that's newly added to it due to the writing of Francis and Mario together. This film was produced by Albert S. Ruddy. And those who know your film history and television history, that name sounds familiar. And I say that because not only did he do TV shows such as Hogan's Heroes, he was a part of The Longest Yard. He also has a Paramount Plus miniseries based off of his experience in life with the Godfather film known as The Offer. And Miles Teller plays him, you know, Miles Teller from so many great films in lore history, whatever you want to call it. Now it comes time to the part of this review where I tell you who was in the film. Starting off as the lead of this film, or one of the co-leads, I should say, is Marlon Brando, who plays Vito Corleone, Al Pacino, who plays Michael Corleone, James Caan, who plays Sonny Corleone, Richard Castellano, who plays Peter Clemenza, Robert Duvall, who plays Tom Hagen, Sterling Hayden, who plays Captain McCluskey, John Marley as Jack Waltz, Richard Conti as Emilio Barzini, Al Thierry as Virgil Salazzo, Diane Keene as K. Adams Corleone, the legend Abe Vigoda as Salvatore Tessio, Talia Shire as Connie Corleone, Jenny Russo as Carlo Rizzi, John Cazale as Fredo Corleone, the legendary John Cazale, Rudy Bond as Cuneo, Al Martino as Johnny Fontaine, Morgana King as Mama Corleone, Salvatore Crescido as Armergio Bonacera, Richard Bright as Neri, Al Rocco as Mo Green, Antonio Giorgio as Bruno Tatalia, Vito Scotti as Nazarene, Terry Lebrano as Teresa Hagen, 
Victor Medina as Philip Dettaglia, Jeannie Lanera as Lucy Mancini, Julie Gregg as Sandra Corleone, Ardrell Shredan as Mrs. Clemenza, and some other actors who play some small roles, particularly in the Sicilian sequences, are Simonetta Stefanelli as Apollonia Vitelli Corleone, Angelo Infantani as Fabrizio, Corrado Gaefa as Don Tomasina, and Franco City as Calo, and Saro Urzi as Vitelli. Now, like all good movies, they have to have good music, a good score. And this is brilliantly done across not just this film, but the following two sequels by Nina Rota. The production companies of this film was Paramount and Alfred Pictures, and Paramount was actually the distributor of this film as well. It was released March 14, 1974 at the Lowe State Theater, and had a national release on March 24, 1974. The runtime is five minutes shy of two and a half hours at just 174 minutes, which equals two hours and 25 minutes, if you can do the math. According to online accounts, the budget was between $6 million and $7.2 million, and there's a box office intake of $250 to $291 million. What I'll be doing now is listing off the accolades of both nominated and won for this film. And trust me, there are a lot of things that this film was nominated and won. The Godfather was nominated for seven awards at the 30th Golden Globe Awards. Best Picture for a Drama, James Conner Best Supporting Actor, Al Pacino and Marlon Brando for Best Actor, in drama film, best score, best director, and best screenplay. When the winners were announced on January 20th, 1973, the film had won categories for best screenplay, best director, best actor in a drama film for Marlon Brando, best original score, and best picture in a drama film. Rhoda's score was also nominated for a Grammy Award for best original score for a motion picture or TV special, the 15th annual Grammy Awards. Rhoda was announced the winner of the category on March 3rd at the Grammy Ceremony in Nashville, Tennessee. When the nominations for the 45th Academy Awards were revealed on February 12, 1973, The Godfather was nominated for 11 awards. The nominations were for Best Picture, Best Costume Design, Marlon Brando for Best Actor, Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola for Best Adapted Screenplay, Al Pacino, James Caan, and Robert Duvall for Best Supporting Actor, Best Film Editing, Nina Rota for Best Original Score, Coppola for Best Director, and Best Sound. Upon further review, actually, of Rhoda's love theme from The Godfather, the Academy found that Rhoda had used a similar score in Eduardo Di Filippo's 1950 comedy Fortunella. This led to reballoting, where members of the music branch chose from six films, The Godfather and the five films that had been on the shortlist for Best Original Dramatic Score but did not get nominated. John Addison's score for a sleuth won this new vote and thus replaced Rhoda's score on the official list of nominees. Going to the awards ceremony, The Godfather was seen as the favorite to take home the most awards. From the nominations that The Godfather had remaining, it only won three of the Academy Awards, Best Actor for Marlon Brando, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Picture. Brando, who had also not attended the Golden Globe ceremony two months earlier, boycotted the Academy Awards and refused to accept the Oscar, becoming the second actor to refuse a Best Actor award after George C. Scott in 1970. Brando sent American Indian rights activist Sasheen Littlefeather in his place, to announce at the award podium Brando's reasons for declining the award, which were based on his objection to the depiction of American Indians by Hollywood and television. Pacino also boycotted the ceremony. He was insulted at being nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, and more screen time than his co-star and Best Actor winner, Brando, and thus should have received the nomination for Best Actor. The Godfather had five nominations for awards at the 26th British Academy Film Awards. The nominees were Pacino for Most Promising Newcomer, Nina Rota for the Anthony Asquith Award for Film Music, Robert Duvall for Best Supporting Actor, and Marlon Brando for Best Actor. The film's costume designer, Anna Hill Johnstone, for Best Costume Design. 
The only nomination to win was that of Nina Rota. Now it comes time for my favorite section of these reviews called the likes and dislikes section. What happens now is I will say what I like and maybe a long list, maybe a short list of the things I enjoy about the film and then I'll go to my dislike section, which again, may be a long list or short list. And then at the end of that, I give my final review thoughts and my rating out of 10 Diamond Daves. With that being said, let's begin the fun. Anyone can have this thought when I'm about to say, whether you're a director yourself, a big time director, or average show viewer of films like myself who just likes watching them to watch them. What I mean by that is music is everything in a film. And a reference I'm gonna make and a connection I'm gonna make is Star Wars. And what I mean by that is in the opening scroll of the text of what the movie is loosely about, and in the ensuing space battle between Princess Leia and Darth Vader, there's music playing. And that makes you really hooked in because you're like, oh, what, what's that? What, what's that, you know, telling you about the film that's going to come up? What, what, what's going on? You're confused, but you're also hooked in it immediately. And then Godfather does that brilliantly in the beginning of this film. Also, going back to that Star Wars connection and hook is the opening sequences. That's everything in the film. If it doesn't grab your attention, like this review in the first few seconds or minutes, you're lost. That's not the case with The Godfather. The opening sequence, a slow pan through a dark room with music and cool looking yellowish gold font is appearing. And then you see this bald man or sort of bald man talking to this guy. You can't see the other guy, but you see this guy talking. Like, who's he talking to? Where is this? What is this about? The Godfather, what does that mean? Is it about someone's actual like Godfather? Like I have a Godfather and my sisters have a Godfather? No, 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 no. That's not even remotely close. But from that moment, you're immediately hooked. And there are some other movies out there where you're tuning in and you get distracted and you get lost. This movie is so good that if you look away for a few seconds, you look back and you're like, oh, what happens? And you got to take all the time to go back. The opening sequence from this film is a 10 out of 10, and no one can deny that aspect, in my opinion, my humble opinion, in all honesty. One of the other top-tier things I like about this film is the strength and the decline of strength that Vito has, not just physically, but emotionally, internally, throughout the film, from beginning to end. And by that, I mean, at the entryway of the film, the beginning chunk of the film, you see him strong, free-minded in the sense that he is only making decisions. He's strong mentally and physically, hard-nosed, ruthless. Then after that sequence in the open market in New York, where he almost gets killed, he gets shot to near death, he starts to drop off, not physically per se, although that's given with the extent of or lack of medical uh, professionalism per se in terms of where we are now with progress. But you see that he's starting to give up a little bit. He's becoming more careless in the sense that he knows now that he's no longer ever going to be as close as he was to being top tier at the beginning of the film like he was. He was only a little bit younger uh, a few years prior. And then to see him at the end, just he's so giving up and so welcoming of his role as consigliere to Michael once Michael takes over. is so powerful, but also shows the range of emotions Marlon Brando can create as a phenomenal actor of his generation. One of the best, if not the best of his generation. And I'm, I'm so glad Marlon was able to play that role because the depth he took with that role to show him so serious and macho at the beginning of the film and to be so lifeless emotionally and mentally at the end of the film was brilliantly done. But I also wonder, was this decline mentally in the sense that he didn't want to adapt to new ways that like Sonny was trying to or that Michael was going to and you could see that's where I was going? Or was it solely just because of the near fatal wound he got 
from the gunfight out in the marketplace. That always boggles my mind. It makes me really ponder this film and that sequence in the movie, but I'll never know. I mentioned a lot of the cast in this film got their start here, or at least I said that a lot of the cast here is unknown to an extent, unless you're a big theater person. You might have seen people in theater productions in the New York-ish area besides Marlon Brando. And this film is a perfect example of, even if you don't have well-known cast members circling the whole production, as long as you have one and the others are able to help carry the load to an extent, small or large amount, it's brilliantly done. And this film was excellent. You'd think that this cast had been acting for many, many, many years, 10, 15 years, but that's not the case for everybody, at least in terms of big budget productions like this film. And I mean, Al Pacino, uh, the rest of this, the, the cast, just so brilliantly done. I was going to name a bunch of cast members, but I couldn't think of their real names. It's just, I can't speak any more of it without repeating myself and the times. Something that though really helps, that makes it even better, because of course it's about the main cast members, Al Pacino, Marlon Brando, James Caan, Robert Duvall, the rest of the, the, the main cast of the core cast members. But what also helps make this film so great is the supporting background cast members, the opposing mafia family heads and their associates and members. That's what makes you interested in this film. Because you're like, oh, that, that character is cool. I wonder what they're up to. I wonder what their real role in this film is or who that actor is. That tells you that this film is brilliant and as great as it is and one of the greatest films of all time. If you want to include Tom Hagen in this thing that I'm about to say, then I guess you can do that. I really enjoy the different relationships that Vito has with all of his kids. Of course, you really see it with Michael. You really see it with James Caan's character as Sonny Corleone. You don't really see it much of the other characters being Fredo and Connie, but to see the different varieties of them, how Vito's really close with Sonny, of course, who is one of his first children. So of course he's gonna think, oh, Sonny's gonna take over the family one day. But we learn later on what he thinks about each of his kids in terms of being part of the family. And then you see though, however, at the end of the film, when Michael's the one who saves his father's life in the hospital after Captain McCluskey gets rid of all the men, Michael's father Vito realizes that Michael's the true heir of this family. He might not have seen it earlier. He might have had disagreements in the scenes of the film, but to see their relationship really thicken and really unfold throughout the second half and second half of the second half of the film, the final fourth of the film was beautifully done between both actors, Al Pacino and Marlon Brando. Another thing I really liked about this film, another one of my likes of this section, is how everyone came up not knowing what Carlo Rizzi was really about, how he was really abusing physically, emotionally, mentally Connie when they were just alone, to then suddenly at the end of the film, Michael, on behalf of what Sonny was about to do, beat the living shit out of Carlo, as he rightfully should have, pulls the rug underneath from Carlo and, realize, and, and tells him, I should say, oh yeah, you think we didn't know what was going on? You thought you could fool Corleone? Not so fast. Then gets the real details out of Carlo, then gets rid of him with help of Clemenza in the car. Uh, I thought that was a really great thing to say, not, not in terms of a personal thing or ethical thing, but in a movie plot way to come off, oh, you know, I, we really don't see everyone, we may know what's going on, and then boom. But it also talks to the keen intellect and business mind, but also the psyche of Marco Corleone played by Al Pacino. Another example by Al Pacino, the young Al Pacino at that point, such a great role and such a great choice for this role as Al Pacino. Something that maybe was more powerful than 
completely loved and my favorite part, but I did enjoy it, was the tug of war Michael showed of wanting to stay in Italy and create a new life with the people there, or maybe take that and bring it home. And then, but also being back home and wanting to go back to normalcy and not have to be excommunicated from the United States after what happened at the Italian restaurant. And that was a powerful thing because I feel as though when you look at how it was before he had to go to Italy, during his time in Italy and going back in Italy, he was the most happiest overseas in Italy with his new family or potentially new family before Apollonia, his wife, was killed. I really thought that that was a nice scene to see, a more peaceful time, one of the few peaceful times Michael has throughout the first two films. Something that I really like about this film that I'm really seeing right now as I'm recording it is how Michael Corleone is a composite of his brother Sonny and his father Vito in the sense that Sonny was a brash person. He struck even when the iron wasn't hot, whereas Vito was somebody who was cold, calculated, cunning, and struck when he knew he should and they weren't paying attention. And Michael has some of that latter aspect where he gets all of his enemies in revenge when they're not expecting it and made look like a fool and they can't do anything about it because they're about to die three seconds later. And I say that because there's an end sequence of the film where it's the christening or baptism, whatever you want to call it, of Connie and Carlo's son. And Michael has his associates wipe out all the opposition, all the heads of the five families, people like Mo Green and then eventually Carlo by the hands of Peter Clemenza. And although it's a short time at the end of the film, it's only done in that time span. And I'm just glad that it was part of it, not in the sense that saying Michael's good per se, that, that's not something I want to put out there, but how they presented this part in the film and also when it was filmed at that time period. The icing on the cake for me of Godfather 1 is the end sequences of when everyone's kissing the ring finger of Michael Corleone in his office. And by that I mean, after Michael wipes out all of his enemies, all people who could screw him over afterwards, you see all the living members of his core group of members of the Corleone crime family kiss his ring finger. And when Alan Erick comes to shut the door, you see Kay looking at him and realizing, shit, what did I get myself into by getting back from after he came back to, from Italy? And she realized that she was second fiddle from that point on, although she didn't realize that at one point she was third fiddle to Apollonia, who was second behind the crime life of his family. And it sort of brings the flashback and mental image of, oh, she made a bad mistake when she ran into him agreeing to get back with him and getting into that car to restart their life again. And it's sort of like, you did that to yourself, basically. You can't not take his charm, but also you should have realized nothing good comes from this relationship. Nothing did come to it beforehand. But again, that's what makes this film great is because these actors bring these great emotions out from them for us to indulge on. Unfortunately, like all good things, there are some negative aspects like in life. And now I'm going to tell you some of the dislikes I had about the film. Although earlier in this review, I mentioned how Vito has visible different relationships with his kids, I sort of misspoke there because in this film, we barely see any bit of Connie and Fredo Corleone. Beyond the wedding sequences earlier in the beginning of the film with Connie's wedding to Carlo, and then Carlo getting killed, and then maybe the end when his father has his service, maybe you see Fredo and Connie. They're not really there. I wish there was more than like there were in the following two films, particularly Godfather 2 and Godfather 3 for those separate characters each. As much as the film's near complete perfect as it is, it would be really cool to see some of the deleted scenes, particularly the ones where Vito visits Janko or they're about to go visit Janko, his former consigliere in the hospital. I think that would have really fit in the film in the sense of seeing 
how they went from a full-blown Italian consigliere to then a non-Italian consigliere in the family just because he was a fill-in and ended up being that's who it was. And you don't really know that he's a fill-in because if you don't see the uh, deleted, deleted scene parts of the film, you're not going to know that. It's sort of an interesting point in the film that they have these deleted scenes that would have felt fit so well in this film, but they're not, and we'll never see them in, unfortunately. Although in the film, there isn't a lot of it compared to the book, I really wish the movie showed more of who Luca Brasi was and the relationship he had with Vito Corleone. Even though his scene in that, or I should say sequences in that film, where he goes to visit the opposing crime family to get a job, ends up getting killed, and then Tessu brings in the bulletproof vest with the fish in it saying Lucas sleeps with the fishes it's one of the greatest sequences of all time however I just I wish he was in the film more just than those stuttering scenes he has in these sequences early on in the film although they show some of the family's operations both business and non-business type of things all Michael's away in Italy it really would have been cool to see some of the business operations more publicly in the film while Michael was away it just it would have been interesting to see how Vito was not ruling, but Sonny wasn't how this world was failing to some extent with his hot-headedness and his poor behavior. One thing I didn't get in this film was the age difference between Clemenza and Sonny and Vito and Clemenza and Vito and Sonny because supposedly Clemenza is Sonny's godfather. But in the film, maybe it's due to the guy who plays Peter Clemenza's signs at that point in his life, but I really think that if you look at Godfather 2, Vito and Peter look more alike in terms of age rather than doing Godfather 1. So it's almost like Godfather 2, Vito and Car uh, Vito, Vito, Sonny, and Peter look the same age that they should be, whereas in Godfather 1, it looks off. But who am I to judge? And now as we wrap up this review of Godfather Part 1 on Favorite Film Fridays, I will end with my final review of the film. If I haven't said enough with my likes and dislikes, there's a reason why this film is one of the greatest of all times and registered in the Library of Congress. There's a reason why this film is always ranked in the top two or three of greatest films of all times with Citizen Kane, because this film is just, from start to finish, great. The pacing is great, the acting is great, the dialogue and conversations is great, the acting from top to bottom is great. It's just like, what can you not ask about this film in ways that it succeeds? Because from top to bottom, as I've said, it is amazing. It doesn't disappoint from start to finish. The opening sequence of titles and that sort of thing is great. The end sequence with Vito in the corner with his grandson is unbelievably amazing. I I'm just lost words, if you can't tell, how great this film is. And I really hope that you've gotten that message with my review today. I know I mentioned it with Shawshank, but this is another film, which is a bucket list life item. You have to watch this at least once. I remember the first time or two I watched this film was with my grandmother and my father. We sat down, we watched the whole first one, and we watched part of the second one because it got too much from my grandmother. Because they aren't long films, but it's, it's such a rite of passage event to watch Godfather one at least once. Because like I said, just said, it's one of the greatest films of all time, both legitimately and personally for people out there to tune into and think about. I also say that because anytime it's on TV, usually TNT, maybe even Spike, whether it's the beginning of the film, the middle, or near the end, I'm always tuning in for as long as I can because it grabs your attention, whether it's the very first time or the most recent kajillionth time you've seen it. It's that damn good, which is why I give this film a 9.5 out of 10 Diamond Daves.
Nothing comes close to perfection, as I've said, but this is as close as you will get with a review of 9.5 Diamond Days. While we've come to the end of this program, this edition, the first edition of Favorite Film Fridays and the second edition of Critiquing with Carr, what a joy and a thrill, a privilege and an honor it's been to tell you my likes and dislikes on why this film, Godfather Part 1, is one of the greatest of all time. I hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, do us a favor by subscribing to the podcast, leaving a like, commenting, sharing, and turning on notifications on whatever podcast platform you are on right now. Follow Instagram at Critiquing with Car. And until next time, we see each other again at the theater soon. Till next time, take care.